You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that Solitaire, a company out of the UK, is making a new sunlight sensor that you can wear that gets you exactly the right amount of sunlight. It tells you when you've had enough sunlight to have the color you want, and to give you an indicator that you've got enough vitamin D. I'm not quite sure that they're gonna actually know how much vitamin D is enough because recommendations vary widely, but it is an interesting idea to say, sunlight's not bad, you shouldn't avoid it, you should just get the right amount. Uh, I haven't tried the thing out, I have never talked to people at the company, I just heard about it, and it's an interesting thing to think about. What would happen if you knew exactly the right amount of sunlight to get? I have no idea, but it's kinda cool. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is known as the prophet of habit-forming technology. And he's a writer, a teacher, a consultant about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And what got me really interested, not only was the book, but also his TED Talk, which is called Unhooked, Increasing Focus in the Age of Distraction. If you know sort of the Dave Asprey story, a long time ago, I spent three months in Nepal and Tibet planning to be connected 
And I carried this little three pound laptop with me, which is quite a feat in 2004. The only problem was there was no bandwidth in all of Asia. So I ended up carrying around a paperweight and accidentally unhooking myself from technology. And I gave a, a talk about that as well uh, in Malmo, Sweden, about the effect of stress from technology. So I was pretty excited to get a chance to talk with Nir Eyal, who's the author of the book, and who just to go into this, what happens when you're constantly plugged in? In fact, you're probably plugged in right now because you're listening to a podcast with some sort of compute device in your car at work. You're probably working on a computer right now. The odds are higher that you're doing that than not. So what's that doing to your brain? That's what Nir and I are going to talk about. Nir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dave. Great to be here. The other thing cool about you, I have to say, is that the, the title of your blog is awesome. <laughs> it's, it's near and far, N-I-R. So using your own name and a pun, I, I got to give you credit. Like that's Well, it, it came from, uh, I earned it because that was uh, the, the joke that kids would use in the playground when I was growing up. When, you know, <laughs> I was a, the one kid with a really odd name. I grew up in central Florida and I was, you know, among very few uh, immigrants. And so, you know, Bob and Michael would make fun of this weird kid with a weird name. And so uh, <laughs> it stuck. I love it. It's a great name. It's very memorable, Thanks. near and far. So how did you find yourself writing a book about habit-forming products, but then talk about the habit of using stuff uh, in a negative way? Like, it seems like you sort of have two sides to your personality there. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't we all, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, I'll be very honest with you. You know, I, I uh, there's a, there's a great quote that I remember that was uh, that goes that you teach most what you need to learn, right? Or there you, you go. so so that's that's been something that that has been very true in my life. And uh, my my background was I started a couple of tech companies, and then the last when the last one was acquired, I took some time to to do what I really wanted to do, which was to write and to kind of digest what I had learned in my last startup. And uh, I, I took what I had learned in the industry. I was in the advertising and gaming industry for many years, and I wanted to, to kind of codify what I'd learned so that people who are in all sorts of industries, not just gaming and advertising, can use it for good, right? So that we can build products and services that people want to use, uh, that people engage with time and time again, and that form healthy habits. Um, and so, you know, I think by and large, these technologies are great. They've enhanced our lives. I don't want to go back to an age before Facebook and Twitter and iPhones. And I think these, you know, these technologies are wonderful. But of course, with every good, there are some bads. And I think um, that the only way we can put technology in its place, that we can make sure that technology doesn't kind of overrun our lives and control us, is to understand how it works. How does it hook us? And so that's kind of the, the, the two reasons I wrote this book. Number one was because I want to help product makers build products and services that, that people actually enjoy, that people want to come back to. And then two, I want to you know, increase this understanding of how products hook us so that we can make sure we're not uh, manipulated in ways we don't want, so that we can put technology in its place. So you came out of the gaming business. I, I worked with a guy who'd spent his whole career at EA when I was at, at Basis, the, the wristband company. I was uh, a CTO there for a little while. And this is a, a company that sold to Intel and could get your wristband, your heart rate from your wrist without a chest strap. And uh, it's a similar technology to what you've seen in the iWatch today, but this was going back quite a while. But it was really interesting to hear the perspective of, of someone who's really spent time focused on gaming because uh, I remember a conversation at lunch. He said, look, in the gaming industry, we'll probably be regulated someday because we have psychologists and anthropologists and everything possible trying to figure out how to make our applications addictive so you'll spend more time in them. Like that's all right. we do and, and you don't stand a chance as a consumer. 
Now that was eye-opening for me, and we were trying to use that in that company, at least I was, to try and get them to apply that towards like heart rate variability and, and using the technology for something that would make people sort of form habits around healthy things. And I ended up not staying at the company, but was he right about that? I mean, are, are gamers and technology companies or are gaming and technology companies like making stuff that's just highly addictive to the point we don't have a chance? Well, I would. I think it depends on who the person we're talking about uh, is. If it's the general consumer, no, I, I think the general consumer wins. Uh, it's it, these yeah. are the kind of things that when the general consumer plays and interacts with, you play it once or twice, and then you you stop. And and look, you know, I, I, there's something very good about losing yourself into an experience. I mean, you know, you don't pick on the games because they're not the first ones to to engineer our behavior. When you think about spectator sports, I mean, think about all the billions of dollars and billions of hours of collected human time that's spent on watching a little ball go back and forth across a field. I mean, the, <laughs> these, the, these products and services uh, let us lose ourselves, right? The same with any entertainment. If you think about books and movies, and all of these things are just ways to kind of escape our mundane realities to, to transport ourselves somewhere else. And I don't think in moderation any of these things are necessarily bad. And I think that for most people, we can put these things under, uh, under control. What I will say, though, is that if you meet the psychographic profile of a person who's predisposed to an addiction, uh, your chances of standing a chance uh, are decreasing, that the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place uh, because of this trifecta of data, access, and speed. I mean, if you think about those three things, about how we're transmitting more data about our behavior, at greater speeds than ever before, and that information is more accessible to us and from us, that uh, trifecta means that the world is becoming a, a much more potentially addictive place. So it's not that everybody is going to become addicted, it's that if you have a psychographic profile, uh, the chances of you becoming addicted to these things increase because they are engineered uh, accordingly. And, and, and some of the evidence that that's the case is that you know the, 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 the gaming industry, whether it's casino gambling or uh, gaming in terms of, of social games, they don't target just anyone, right? They target people who are called whales. And those whales spend either a lot of time or a lot of money on those games. And that's really who they want. I mean, if you look at the revenue stream, if you ask your friend where the money comes from, uh, it doesn't come from the person who plays once or twice a week. It comes from the person who's playing all the time. And it turns out that 1% to 2% of the population that plays these games makes up about 90 to 95% of the revenue. Some games, it's 99% wow. of the revenue. And, that, and that's not necessarily unique. If you look at all sorts of industries, uh, this is probably going to be one of my forthcoming books so, uh, that is all about these industries that focus on how really uh, more industries than you'd expect are, are fathead industries. Even, even book publishing or uh, you know, certainly video games, you know, you're, you're talking about a very small proportion of the population that makes up a, a, a disproportionate amount of the revenue. I didn't realize it was it was that different. So basically, you're looking for a few addicts, right? Now, now what wow. you know the, the the degree that which someone is an addict or not is is debatable. You know, it's it's hard to say whether someone is a, is a book addict versus a video game addict okay. versus a gambling addict. This is where the lines get a little blurry. <laughs> uh, but for sure, there are some industries, and this is I've written about this quite a bit on on TechCrunch and a few other publications. You know, I don't mind uh, products as an unfortunate consequence addicting people. I, I think that's, that's something that happens when you build a great product. Some people take it too far, and that's something that's naturally going to happen. Uh, what I have a problem with is industries that depend upon 
addicts, right? For the first time, these companies know how much you're using. So even though addiction is nothing new, right? People have been addicted to all sorts of things for a very, very long time, right? But like, like in the water. past, yeah. right, right, all, like all kinds of things, right? People, you know, if you were an alcohol maker, you could throw up your hands and say, well, I don't know who the alcoholics are. That's not my problem. How could I possibly know who abuses my product? But for the first time, you know, these products know. The gaming companies know. You can't walk into a Las Vegas casino and just put a dollar into a machine anymore. You've got to go get a loyalty card to play. And so they have personally identifiable information where if they wanted to turn off those machines to people who are abusing them, they would go out of business. And so those are the kind of businesses that I, I have trouble with. Uh, but I think I'm optimistic that, you know, that, that if, if we put pressure on these companies, if we do what, I, what I've been advocating for, which is to create a use and abuse policy, uh, that, that there's a certain amount of hours that we say, hey, you know what, that's, that's too much. We should, we, should, we should help folks who are using the product too much. And we're already seeing companies doing this, companies like Stack Overflow. Actually, after, if you use Stack Overflow more than 20 hours a week, they essentially break the hook. You can't earn any more points. Wow. And so I think other companies should do things that are similar if people are overusing the product. But all that being said, to put it in perspective, the vast majority of companies that I work with, the vast majority of companies who read my book, uh, their problem is not overuse, <laughs> right? The vast majority of products out there, your listeners, I'm guessing are not struggling with people overusing their product. They're struggling with people not giving a shit about their product and not using it at all. And so that's really the people who my heart goes out to are the folks who are making good products and services that can help people's lives. But for want of the product not being designed properly, people aren't doing the behaviors they themselves want to do. And so that's really the core of my work. So, so that, basically, there's two big points here. One is companies can do bad things, even with really good products, if, right. if people are just like stuck on it. And I have this problem. I mean, there are people who have listened to 250 hours of Bulletproof Radio, and they keep asking me for more. And I'm, I don't know. I'm kidding. Uh, but, <laughs> sorry. Self-referential joke there. But... It is it is an issue for companies, but but let, let's assume that for the average entrepreneur listening, or for someone who's more likely just to be a consumer of products listening to to Bulletproof Radio right now, you're you're looking at a bunch of good stuff out there that you don't know about or that you're not using enough of things that you maybe want to do. Like like you'd feel better if you weighed yourself every morning. By the way, I don't think you would, but let's say you believe that and you want to do it, or you want to build some healthy habits, or use that coat hanger slash exercise machine that you bought a long time ago, uh, something like that. How would a company go about designing something to make it more habit forming than not? Right. So it all comes down to building in hooks and hooks are these four step processes, these four steps that users are taken through uh, in the user experience uh, that changes their tastes, changes their preferences and forms these habits. And so what we see, uh, this is kind of what I uncovered through my, my research over the years, is that these all sorts of habit-forming products have these four basic steps built into the product design. It's not something you can bolt on after the fact. It's something that, that is built into the user experience. And those four steps are a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And through successive cycles, through these hooks, in repetition, this is how we build these, these habits and how we learn these increasingly more complex behaviors uh, with the products we use. All right. So walk me through each of those four steps. Like sure. what are those? And, and there's two perspectives that I really want you to cover. One is for people making products, but also for people using products. Like how do we become aware of these things and the products that we have now? And how can we defend against them if we don't want to be abused by a product? And how can we leverage them if we actually want to use the product more? 
Yep, absolutely. So let, let me first do the perspective of, of the product maker. So if you're building a product or service that you want to create a healthy habit in your user, you want the user to come back time and time again, uh, first thing you need to do is to figure out what your triggers are. Now triggers are calls to action. They tell the user what to do next with some piece of information. And there are two types of triggers. There are external triggers and there are internal triggers. External triggers are things in our environment that tell us what to do next with some piece of information. Click here, buy now, play this, uh, a friend telling you through word of mouth about uh, this great new app you should try out, all examples of external triggers. We all know these external triggers, we see these in our environments every single day, but what we don't think about enough and what turns out to be absolutely critical to forming these long-term habits is creating these, uh, these uh, associations with internal triggers. Now, internal triggers are things that tell us what to do next, just as reliably as those external triggers, but where the information for what to do is in the user's head, right? It's stored as a memory, as an association. So these can be things like being in a particular place, a certain situation, a certain routine, and most frequently an emotion that triggers us to action, that tells us what to do next with little or no conscious thought. So when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're unsure, we Google it. When we are bored, well, that's a great time to check ESPN or sports scores or our stock prices or news or YouTube. There's lots of these solutions to this painful internal trigger of boredom. So the first step is to figure out if you're going to create a habit-forming product, if you want to not rely upon those external triggers over time, you're going to have to form a link to an internal trigger. That's the holy grail of a habit-forming product is to not need a spammy message, not to need an expensive piece of advertising to cue the user, but instead that the user cues themselves through some sort of internal trigger. But you have to figure out what that pain point is that you're going to attach to that occurs frequently enough in the user's life. So after we've got the trigger, next comes the action. Well, hold on a second. Yeah, I, sure. I want a concrete example here. So now tell sure. me, give me a really specific thing, like, like make sure. up a product Walk me through it, and then tell me what the consumer is going to do if they don't want that to happen. Like, give me the firewall. Sure. Give, give me the. So let's, let's take what, what's a what's a uh, product or service that people find uh, habit forming. So let, let's take ben I don't and, know Facebook, ben email, you name it. What's that? Ben and Jerry's. Okay. Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is an emotional lonely trigger there, but we'll assume that we don't mean that. Let, let's right. use a social media thing. Pick one. Yeah. Sure. Uh, let's say Facebook, for example. Okay. So Facebook, maybe I'm using because I'm lonely, I'm seeking connection, I'm bored, whatever that might be the case. So Facebook has, has engineered the product so that whenever I'm, I'm feeling that internal trigger, when I seek to escape what's called, what psychologists call a negative valence state, that's going to be my solution. And of course, the, 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 the beauty of this three and a half pounds of fat that we carry around on our shoulders every day is that this, this brain that we all have in our heads is an amazing pattern matching device. And so whatever can, can provide relief to that pain point, to that emotional pain point, is what the brain will turn to with little or no conscious thought out of habit. And so let's take the example of, of, uh, of, of Facebook. The external trigger, before you form that, that associated bond, that external trigger will be a notification. It'll be an email from the company telling you, hey, come check out what your friend did on Facebook. That's the external trigger. The internal trigger, as we just mentioned, is loneliness, boredom, one of those uh, emotional states that you're seeking relief by using this product. And then of course, if you want to, uh, if you want to stop a bad habit as a consumer, one of the best things you can do is to simply remove the triggers. Uh, there's all kinds of ways we can remove triggers. There's stats that show that about two thirds of smartphone users never change their notification settings. 
Yeah. What? <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> you have to change your notification settings because if you don't, you're at the app maker's request, right? You're at their yeah. beck and call. So for easiest thing you can do is to go through your notification settings and make sure that only the things that you want to interrupt you during your day are the ones that get through. Remove the triggers that you don't want in your life. Okay, so consciously go in and remove triggers. And I've done that. I, I mean, one of the most insane things you could possibly do is be notified every time an email comes in. Ridiculous. Um, it, Ridiculous, yeah. It's, it, it'll destroy your life. And, That's absolutely right. And letting your, your, your iPhone or whatever other phone you have just constantly put up social media alerts on the screen, it's, it chews you up. I, I don't right. know how it's possible to, to be functioning as a human being if you have that going on because some large capacity, some, something you could use for anything else just gets distracted away from you. Exactly, exactly. And so if you, okay. if you want to regain control, if you want to regain focus, then the first thing you need to do by following the hook model is remove the unnecessary triggers. And there's a bunch of different ways. If we talk for you know 10 more minutes, I'm sure we can come up with 10 different ways that you can remove unwanted triggers in your life. I mean, from a health perspective, you talked about food and, and the uh, habit-forming or potentially addictive pro uh, properties of, of unhealthy food. I mean, you know, when, when I started changing the way I eat, I, I just stopped buying the things I didn't want to be tempted by, right? I, I didn't have those things in the house, and it was amazing how you don't eat things that aren't around, that don't trigger you. And so that's a, that's a very easy step you can take to not be triggered by the behaviors you don't want to do. It, it's interesting. There's psychological triggers, which is a, a large part of what you're talking about. There's also physiological uh, triggers where, oh, I, I ate something that caused a crash in my blood sugar, so like now I have a food craving whether it's right. for that thing or something else. The so-called, you can't eat just one uh, benefit of uh, potato chips. <laughs> right, so that's, it's interesting. That's a little bit more meta, but it's yeah. actually, if you think about the, the hook for sugar, is, is exactly what, you're, uh, what you've just described. That's, that would, I would put that in the investment phase. So the, the trigger for sugar is the physical manifestation of the thing, right? The mm -hmm. cookie, the, the temptation, the soda. That's the external trigger. Maybe your internal trigger is hunger. But then, of course, as you pass through the hook, the investment is that it's going to come back and bite you and that it's going to make you use the product again in the future. Uh, and we'll get to it when we go through these four steps about how the investment phase works. All right, let's, let's move to the investment phase, but, but keep, in, yeah. keep in mind that idea that, all right, how do I block this? Because yeah. social media, they're putting those alerts on our phones because they want us to use more social media, not because it's good for us, not because we'll be better people or perform better or feel better. Um, and I, I want to also, for each of these phases, let's bring that back to something like food, something in your house, whether sure. it's yeah. increasing a good habit or decreasing a bad habit, because this is what's really valuable. And most people don't think about this style of habit at all. And just, just being right. able to see this is super cool. Absolutely. So the next step after the trigger is the action. The action is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So the, an example of a simple behavior done in anticipation of reward is scrolling through your newsfeed. It's pushing the play button on YouTube. It's a quick search on Google. These incredibly simple actions done in anticipation of an immediate reward. Uh, and so we, we see that in all sorts of, of products and services. And what, what uh, the, the kind of buzzword in Silicon Valley right now and when it comes to product design is simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I mean, everything needs to be as easy as possible to do. Why? Because, of course, the easier something is to do, the more likely the user is to do it. And so I talk about in the book, as a product maker, uh, that if you think about all innovation, really, what's at the core of all innovation? And I don't care if it's the cotton gin or the iPhone, the core of innovation is decreasing the distance between the recognized need and the reward. And that's what the action phase is all about. 
So if you're a product maker, you make the behavior as easy as possible, and I give kind of several recipes and, and rules to follow as to how to do that. But if you're uh, someone who's trying to break an unwanted habit, well, then you do the opposite. You make the behavior more difficult to do. And so I can give you a few examples of how I've kind of put technology in its place in my own life. Yeah. Um, one thing I do is that I, I went to Home Depot. Well, let me back up. So we can we can get personal here, right? We're, we're yeah, friends. Absolutely. And, uh, I, I can tell you a little bit more than I might tell most people. Well, let, let me tell you a little bit about my sex life and that uh, my wife and <laughs> I were finding man. that yeah, we were finding that night after night, uh, we would come to bed and instead of being with each other and, and, and being intimate, she'd be on her iPad, I'd be fondling my iPhone, and we wouldn't be spending time with each other. Did you guys and ever so, try just like sexting in bed? Because that, <laughs> <know> that was... <laughs> Not a bad idea, maybe. <laughs> so here's, here's what we did. So I went to Home Depot and I got myself a, I think it was a $6 outlet timer. And I took that outlet timer and I plugged, so but when outlet timer works is you set a time on, the, on this outlet timer and every night at that set time, whatever's plugged in will shut off. Well, guess what I plugged into my outlet timer? My internet router. Ah. So every night at 10 p.m., still to this day, every weeknight, we give ourselves weekends off if we want to watch a, a movie or something. Every weeknight at 10 p.m., my internet shuts off. Right? So now... I could still go turn back on the internet, right? If I really wanted to do that, I, I could do that. But what I've done is made that behavior, that habit, something that's a little bit more difficult to do, right? I could go fuss with the box, unplug it, plug it back in, and do all this extra work, but I've suddenly make the behavior that I don't want to do more difficult. Why? Because now it allows me, instead of doing the behavior mindlessly, I've inserted a bit of mindfulness into that behavior. Do I really need to, to stay online, or can I call it a night and actually have a conversation and maybe more with my wife. Wow, that's brilliant. What I do, <laughs> what I've done for a long time is I have a, either a just a wall switch that controls an outlet and I plug my internet router into that. So when I go to bed, I hit the switch and that turns off Wi-Fi at night because sleeping with Wi-Fi on is probably bad for you. I, right, it may right. not be, but it probably is. So it certainly isn't going to be of benefit to me. So that's one step, but now what I've done is I've asked myself to make a conscious decision or just to remember to hit that light switch. And what you've done is essentially the negative version of that, which is to say that you now have to make a decision to use it. And since right. we all know, at least if you listen to this show, that making decisions is biologically expensive. You only have so many. It's the end of the day for you there too. We're weakest at making good decisions. Exactly. So that's actually brilliant. And I, Thanks. If for people listening to this, that is something you could do so easily. It'll, right, very easy. It'll turn, around, even, you know, it'll turn it on at 6.30 in the morning whenever you want. You'll never know it was off all night. It'll be better for you from an EMF perspective, and you save yourself that evening thing. Wow, I, I love that's that, right. Nir. Thank you for sharing Thanks. that. Thanks. Thanks. There's another one. I mean, and there's, there's a okay. ton of software that we're seeing coming down the, the pipes now as well. That There's this whole industry that I call attention retention devices. Yeah. There's all these products that realize, hey, you know, technology is kind of seeping into areas of my life where I don't want it. I can't focus. So there actually, there's a lot of people building tools to help us do this. There's a great product uh, called uh, Freedom. And there's another one called, I think it's called Stay Focused. Uh, that's wonderful. I mean, I couldn't have written that book had it not been for, for some of these products. What they do, basically, they, they shut off access to the web during certain times of the day. So every morning from 7.30 to 9.30, that's my dedicated writing time. My, I cannot get on the internet. If I try and get on the internet, I get this screen that says, aren't you supposed to be working right now? And so <laughs> if I really, really want to get on the web, I could take a few steps, right? I could mess with some settings. I could reboot my machine. But it makes it all of a sudden very difficult to do. 
And so by adding friction, I don't do that behavior I don't want to do, and I'm more likely to do the thing I do want to do, which is to focus and write. Now, you kind of remind me in some way of um, my friend Manish Sethi. This is the guy who started Pavlock, and I'm uh, yeah. I'm an investor in Pavlock. I, I like the idea. And you know, he uses this, this wristband that shocks you and you have a bad habit. He's got famous because he hired a girl from Craigslist to come to his house and slap him every time he used Facebook, literally slap him. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that behavior and also yours, aren't those just issues of self-control? Like, like, isn't a well-trained... All of this is an issue of self-control. <laughs> like, isn't a well-trained mind going to just like, oh, I'm working right now, so I'm not going to do this? Like, me... Well, that's the hope. And you know what? <laughs> if, if you don't have this problem, you don't need any of this, right? This is for people who are saying to themselves... Uh, this is something I struggle with personally. It's something that I struggle with because these, these technologies know how to hook us. And so what I would find myself doing is I was trying to write this book that's, you know, writing is something that does not come naturally for me. It's hard work to write, uh, as it is for most authors, even published ones. And what I would find is when something got hard, this internal trigger of, you know, of, of, of difficulty, of stress, of frustration would lead me to check email and to check, uh, check Twitter and check Facebook and do all these things that, that made me lose my focus uh, and not dedicate myself to writing. I mean, uh, uh, even, even Jonathan Frazen, who's you know, called one of the, 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 the greatest American authors in history, uh, he has a laptop that he writes on uh, that he's actually yanked out the, the Wi-Fi card from this uh, from this laptop, and he only writes on that laptop. And he says that no no serious author can write fiction with an internet connection. So honestly, if this is something you don't struggle with, you know, it, disregard all that. <laughs> but many of us have <laughs> these habits. Everyone listening struggles with this from one perspective or another. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing, uh, I I think I did a pretty good job on managing that. I, I looked at installing some software like that. I never ended up doing it, and I I found though that if I cleared my calendar and I knew I had writing time that I would like do all of the biohacks that turned up my brain and I would just like go into a flow state and write for like 23 hours straight or something and sort of come out of this fog. Yeah. Yeah. But if I needed to write something in a half hour in the middle of a busy day, then yeah, it's really, really hard to get into the writing state without checking your email or going to Facebook and just, you know, realizing at the end of the half hour that you didn't do what you needed to do. All right. So I, right. I'm, I'm with you there. And I think there's, there's value in, in you controlling your technology instead of letting your technology control you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the next step of the hook after the action phase, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward, the next step of the hook is the variable reward phase. Uh, okay. And so the reward phase and typically variable rewards, this comes out of the classic work of B.F. Skinner. Uh, you might remember Skinner from your Psych 101 class, the father of operant conditioning. He took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave these pigeons a little disc to peck at. And every time they'd peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. They would get a little food pellet. And at first, Skinner would observe that these pigeons would basically peck at the disc whenever they were hungry, right? Peck at the disc, get a food pellet. But then Skinner did something a little bit different. He introduced these variable rewards. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, nothing would happen. Not, no no uh, food pellet would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Uh, and so we found in all sorts of products that are most habit-forming, most addictive, the things that capture our attention and won't let go, we find these variable rewards and uh, in all sorts of things. It's the same thing that makes 
gambling so intoxicating, right? This variable reward of pulling on a slot machine and not knowing what's going to come out is the exact same psychology that keeps us scrolling and scrolling and searching and searching on our Pinterest feeds or our Twitter feeds or our Facebook feeds or our email feeds. It's this variable reward. We're not sure what we're going to see next, so we search and search and search and search and hunt for the next variable reward. So if you're a product maker, the key then is to uh, give the user what they want, to scratch the user's itch, but to have this bit of mystery around what they might find the next time they engage with the product. So that's if you're a product maker. If you're someone trying to break some of these bad habits, well, then you've got to figure out how to delay the reward, how to make the reward not so immediate. So one, one, again, a personal anecdote here that I struggle with on the web is that, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you start reading some bit of content, right? You go to, you go to uh, New York Times or TechCrunch or, I don't know, some publication, some blog, and you start reading a headline. You're like, wow, this is really interesting. And then you see another headline on the side, and you start following that link. And then you follow another link and another link. And then that five minutes of reading turns into 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour of clicking and reading news articles, right? So that's a great example of how products will suck you in from these variable rewards. There's variability around what the next article might say, what's behind the next headline. Well, so how do you, what do you do with that? So I, uh, I found this great app called Pocket. Uh, there's a few apps that are, are competitors to Pocket, and so I installed their little Chrome extension on, on my browser. And every time I, I have a rule that if I see an article I want to read, I can read it, I just can't read it right now. So I never read articles on the web. I always wow. save them to Pocket. Pocket puts them on my mobile device. Now I've got it here on my mobile device. And so when I'm ready to read it, I can go back and read it later. Now, here's, here's where you get bonus points. Now, this is Habit Formation uh, 202 as opposed to Habit Design 101. What you do is you use a technique called temptation bundling. Now, temptation bundling has been shown to be very effective when you take something you want to do and you couple it with something you don't really want to do. So, for example, I, I have another app called Lizgo, which will actually read those articles that I saved into Pocket over audio. It's like Siri basically reading my articles to me, and I can listen to those articles when I'm in the gym. And so that's kind of my extra boost of motivation. That's my extra reward. I delay that variable reward until later, as opposed to going through this mindless, you know, time-sucking vortex online. I can delay right. it until I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it in the gym. So for everyone listening who's scrambling to figure out those apps, my team will translate those, will transcribe those, put them in the show notes. And because I know that they're listening as we're going to be doing the edits on this. Um, they're also going to send those to me in an email so then I can install those apps and play with them as well. So they'll be in the blog post and we'll link to all that stuff. So don't stress, just head on over to the website and you'll get a list of Lizgo and uh, Pocket and all the other stuff like that. So Nir, thanks for, for bringing this up. This sure. is really cool. I hadn't thought of doing that either, but it, it's, a, it's a really interesting perspective on changing the environment around you by actually changing the technology to make it act in your best interest. So keep going. Okay, so we've done the, the internal triggers, the external triggers, the action, the variable reward, and now comes the last step of the hook, the investment phase. Uh, and the investment phase is, is probably the most overlooked, and the companies that I work with, it, this is where companies don't, they, they forget about this last step, which is to ask the user to put something into the product to improve the product and to trigger themselves to come back. So I'll give you a few examples. So for example, when you use Slack, for example, the, the fastest growing enterprise company in history, or uh, any number of other messaging services, WhatsApp, for example, bought by Facebook for $22 billion, when you send someone a message, there's no immediate gratification, right? There's no immediate reward. That's what the action phase is for, is about giving you immediate gratification. 
When you send someone a message with one of these platforms, what you're doing is you're investing in the service for a future benefit. Okay? And that and that future benefit, what you're doing is you're loading the next trigger because you're likely to get a reply. And that reply comes coupled with an external trigger, right? That big notification that says, click me here, open me. And then when you open that external trigger, that's where you pass through the hook once again. Okay? So that's called loading the next trigger. The investment increases the likelihood of the next pass by loading the next trigger. The second way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass is by storing value. So, you know, when it comes to most products that we use, physical products, your chair, your table, your clothing, everything in the physical world depreciates. It loses value with wear and tear. But habit-forming products should do the opposite. They should actually get better with use. And they do this because of this principle of stored value. So the more data I put into a service, like um, uh, my Google Drive, the more data I put into my, uh, my service, the better it becomes as my one and only cloud library. Uh, the more followers I have on Twitter, for example, the better the service becomes a way for me to reach my audience. Uh, reputation is another form of stored value. If you think about Airbnb uh, or, or, or uh, eBay, the, more my, the better my reputation, the more valuable that service becomes to me over time. And so when I, the more I invest in these services, the more stored value I put into them, the better they become, the more likely I am to use them in the future. And so, so that's from the product building perspective. So if you're building a habit-forming product, you've got to figure out a way to get the user to invest, to load the next trigger, and store value. And if you're trying to break uh, an unwanted habit, uh, this is where you've got to make sure you don't invest in products that you don't know where the end is, right? So we see this a lot with, when it comes to games, when it comes to uh, television series. I mean, I know a lot of people love Games of Thrones and House of Cards, but you know, we've seen this binge-watching epidemic uh, which, again, if it's under control, if it's not a problem for you, disregard this. But if you're a person who says, you know what, this is actually not helping me, this is not serving me, well, what you would do is to be very careful of investing in services where you don't know where the end is. So when I'm looking for entertainment options, I don't watch series, right? I've been, I've been burned too many times where I feel like I have to. I feel like I'm compelled to keep watching and watching. Why? Because these series are engineered to keep you watching, right? They are built with that stupid cliffhanger at the end of every single episode <laughs> that gets you to emotionally invest to bring you back next time. That's how they're designed. They're written that way. So don't fall for it. Don't invest in services without a definitive end in sight. Instead, for your entertainment options, watch a movie. Watch something that has a definitive end. You can see exactly it's going to take you 120 minutes to finish this movie. So that would be the way that you would break some of these investments. And then back to the sugar example, this is the kicker when it comes to sugar. Because highly processed sugar has this glucose spike, of course, you know, every time you're, you're digesting sugar, you're loading the next trigger for hunger to bring you back again in the future. That's the internal trigger to bring you back again the next time. So you would avoid the trigger. It, it seems like you're missing out on breaking bad. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, I've missed. Look, you know, living living the addicted lifestyle. Uh, I can see how there's a lot of fun things that I miss out on. I don't eat sugar. I don't eat processed carbs. I don't watch addictive episodes. I don't play addictive games. I don't gamble. I mean, there's a lot of things that I teetotal. Uh, so I'll we, admit we it. Could, could we call this episode "How to Become the World's Most Boring Person"? Yeah, you might. You might. <laughs> yeah, not, and, not and really. again, like you know, half half joking. Look, there is a place this stuff clearly right like it's great to lose yourself in a wonderful movie or a fantastic book i'm all for that i love facebook i love twitter i love my iphone i always get the latest gadgets i love this stuff the the, the point here is is not to stop using this stuff 
The point is to get it under control, and we get it under control by understanding it as opposed to letting it control us. There's a technique for binge watching that I, I use. Uh, what I do is I drink a lot of coffee and stay up all night. <laughs> there you go. Um, what what you can do with some services, you can download the episode like on the iPad. Uh, there's the equivalent thing for Android. So then I only watch them on airplanes where there's a yeah. defined amount of time in the flight and you only download X number of episodes. So you can't get new episodes and then whenever you're going to fly again. But if you download a couple and only watch them when you're disconnected, you can basically turn them into little movies where you still want to know what happened, but right. you'll, you'll be all right. Perfect. Yeah, you, so, you broke the hook. That's exactly what you did. You broke the hook so that yeah. you can't keep passing through it again and again and again mindlessly. What I do then is I just book a trip around the world that I don't need to take <laughs> and I just... <laughs> right. It's an expensive episode. <laughs> right. Um, so you, you, can, you can increase the cost um, of, of doing something in all sorts of artificial ways right. as a way to do it. But Okay. So, so what's what's next in this overall addiction cycle that we're mapping out here? That's it. That's the four steps of the hook. The trigger, yeah, the action, the, the reward, and the investment. All right. So now let's say that, that someone, um, I, let, let's say that someone just bought an Xbox. They want to play some video games, but they don't want to get hooked. Okay, walk me through what would I change? What would I do differently? Okay, I, I've said I, I want to play a video game, but... Like, yeah, like how... you know, it's, it's funny because I think actually console games don't have the same problem because console games actually have a definitive end in sight. Uh, okay. uh, console games, I mean, look, there are people who get addicted to console games. There's people who get addicted to all sorts of things. But console games have a, have a property called finite variability. Finite variability is when you pass through an experience and it becomes more and more predictable the more you engage with it. So that's why we don't generally, you know, go watch a movie, and then as soon as we, the, the credits roll, we walk out and buy another ticket and watch the movie again. We don't do that because we already know what's going to happen. We, we've already seen the movie. The, the, we know what the, how the happy ending wraps up. We don't, there's no variability left. And so we see the same happening in books. We see the same happening in, in console video games, where when you get to the end, okay, you beat the game. There's, there's not much more to see anymore. You wouldn't want to do the whole game again because there's a finite end in sight. Those, those kind of products, actually, people tend to be able to put in, pl in their place what, what, what worries me more is the products with infinite variability, right? The products that don't become more predictable with use, that they just go on and on and on and on and keep sucking you in. That's the more troublesome, uh, you know, addictive behaviors that we see. So, so the very first instance of, of that that I came across was the early internet chat rooms. And, right. And we, I, I was horribly addicted in, in college. This is you know, 1990. Uh, just what do we call it back then? This was Usenet, yeah, and way pre-internet, and it, it was it was insane. What That's right. Would, yeah, what would happen there? And I would literally spend all the time I should have been studying, just like talking about random crap. At the same time, AOL was coming up. AOL had the same thing. There were people who were spending a thousand dollars a month on modem connection fees because they couldn't stop. Right, right. Because that's an example of infinite variability, exactly. right? And we see the same thing on social networks, right? Because our mm -hmm. friends, unlike these experiences in a book or a movie or even a, a game where there's a finite end, you know, our friends' information about real people is much more variable. Right? They're going on vacations, they're posting interesting pictures, they're linking to articles. There's a high degree of variability about what you might find the next time you engage with the experience. So, so on console games then, the riskiest thing you could do would be to connect it to the cloud and then play against other live humans because the infinite variability just got added. Right, so when right. you think about some of the most habit-forming games, if not addictive games out there, the ones that people you know, can't stop playing, when you, uh, when you think about World of Warcraft, 
Yeah. Right? World of Warcraft, it's, it's a nice game, but it's kind of simple. Like, you kind of figure it out after a while. So why do people, people keep playing it, you know, for years and years and years? Well, it very quickly is not about the game. It's about your guild. It's about these other mm. people you're playing it with that you feel a social responsibility to. And that's really why you keep playing. It's your loyalty to other people. So, so this, this is definitely a conundrum because there are thousands more services right now that are, are getting built in order, in order to take advantage of those things like that. But we only have so much time and so much energy and so much focus. Is there like a dilution effect that's happening with these habit forming things where if every company out there uses the same set of, of things to get us from habits, are we just going to become sort of numb to habit forming things and, and free of habits because everywhere we go, people are trying to get us addicted. So you just don't care anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I hope that my techniques uh, that I'm describing here are one day rendered useless, that people become so yeah. smart to how these things work that they can really truly control their, their habits uh, and not be unwanted and, and not to succumb to unwanted manipulation. That'd be terrific. Um, you know, what, what I, what I see a bigger problem in is not that products are too engaging. I think there's, you know, there's only a handful of products that actually do this to us. Uh, you know, what I'm trying to reach out to the people that I'm really trying to serve are the product makers who are struggling to make products that people actually want to use. I mean, if you think about, you know, how do you typically interact with government services, with, you know, a corporation that you rely upon, uh, with, 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 with software at work or at school, Software typically sucks. I mean, it's really hard to use. It's yeah. it's it does it's not uh, inclusive to people who may not be as technologically savvy. It's it's annoying. It's it's not fun to use. So what I want to have, you know, the real problem is not that software is is too addictive. There's very few products that actually are too addictive. The real problem is that there's so much crappy software out there. There's so many products that people genuinely want to use, but for lack of good product design, they don't. And that's the real problem today. And, and hopefully products will get easier to use. They'll use these same techniques to become better and, 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 and more uh, user focused. And then, you know, then we can start worrying about the, about, uh, you know, the government website being so wonderful and engaging that people want to engage with it all the time. Uh, maybe that would be great if people actually, you know, engage with their civic services more often. All right. Uh, so you could use these for good. Right. Uh, you write about a couple other things that are maybe outside this specific uh, scope, but you've yeah. written about uh, how to get over FOMO, the fear of missing out, which is a, a major thing that drives people to just do random stuff. What is fear of missing out the way you define it and how do people get around that? Right. So FOMO is actually a real word as of a couple of years ago. It's actually in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary this year. It stands for fear of missing out. And it's a powerful internal trigger that we have this, uh, this, this, this pain point, this desire that we may be missing out on something. And of course, that triggers us. Uh, with little or no conscious thought to use Instagram or uh, any one of a number of different social services, social networking services. And so that FOMO can be a very powerful internal trigger. And again, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that internal trigger or the products that, that leverage it. Uh, the idea, again, is to how, to how to put it in its place and to make sure that it doesn't control us. And so there's all kinds of techniques that we can, we can use uh, to put FOMO in its place. Some of them we've already discussed already around removing the triggers, making the action more difficult, removing the rewards or delaying the rewards, and then finally not investing uh, in those services when they don't serve us. Uh, got it. Uh, so it, that's when there's a service trying to trigger FOMO, but just in general, if, if you're walking around carrying FOMO, is there anything you can do to just get over it? Well, I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, I think for most people who don't have the psychographic profile of an addict, and what we see typically as an addict is, is running from some kind of deeper dilemma, some kind of deeper pain point, and for most of us, we, we can figure out a way to, to kind of put that in its place. 
Um, you know, there's been some some various techniques that I describe on on the blog, and a few other guest posts have also described on how to how to put FOMO in its place. And and part of it is to relish uh, missing out. So that's not a, it's not FOMO; it's the pleasure of missing out, right? The, the enjoying the fact that I'm I'm prioritizing you know my family, or I'm prioritizing my work, or something else, and I'm actually relishing the fact that I'm missing out. So it's kind of tr- changing that frame of reference so that it's not something that's causing anxiety and pain, but it's something that you actually enjoy the solitude. And so I'm not missing out, I'm doing something even more fun. All right, that's cool. Right. All right, right. and we've got time for another, maybe one or two questions for the end sure, of the sure. interview. Uh, let's see, why do good habits not last? Hmm. Well, so there's this uh, phenomenon that's called extinction when it comes to any learned behavior. Uh, and if it's not reinforced, if the behavior is not reinforced over time, then we tend to lose that association. We, you know, our brain culls away uh, connections that, that aren't used frequently. And so that actually leads exactly to why many of the products we use today are, are so habit-forming, is that you know, the stats are showing us that people are checking their phones 150 times a day. And so when you think about what makes a habit last or not last, frequency is a huge, huge factor. Uh, in fact, many times I get companies that come to me for my consulting services or read the book, and, and they ask me to make products that aren't uh, frequently used into habits, and I got to tell them it can't be done because that's, that's the, uh, na- the nature of, of habit-forming technologies that it has to be used frequently. Now, there's been all these kind of urban legends that there's some kind of magic number of 30 days, 45 days, 90 days that you need to do a behavior before it becomes a habit, and that's actually scientific bunk. There's no, there's no factual evidence that shows that there's a magic number for all behaviors. What we do know is more frequency is better. So the more often you do a behavior, the more likely you are to form that habit. And that there's a precipitous drop-off in the likelihood of forming a habit if the behavior does not occur within a week's time or less. So if you're building a habit-forming product, if you're trying to find a way to get people to engage in your product or service uh, as part of a, a, a habitual behavior, you've got to figure out a way to engage them within a week's time or less, or it's very, very difficult to form that habit. It's not impossible, it just becomes very tough to do. Okay, that, that makes sense. And it's, it, it's really kind of a, a tough thing for almost everyone that I've interacted with, where they say, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this good habit. It's like the New Year's resolution. You, you do it, but then you fail a little bit, and you stop doing it. And those are not quite yet habits. Those are things motivated by willpower. You're like, I'm going to do it because I'm supposed to do it because I've decided to do it, but not because it's automatic. And, and when you can move it from there to automatic, something, something magic happens. Right. I, I've, right. I've seen research around the habit forming window being around 40 or 42 days. Roughly, if you do something daily for six weeks, it becomes a habit. Do you buy into that? No, no, it's it, that's you. That, I bet you found that on like a life hacker or some kind of no, I, <laughs> some kind of digest. Because the re- what the research mm-hmm. it typically shows us is that it's actually um, there's no there's no magic number that carries across every behavior. Because what you have to take into account is emotional salience. Oh, yeah. So uh, you know you can have an automatic automatic reaction if the experience frightens the hell out of you. You're never gonna forget it, right? Like if you if you if you step on a over a curve on the street and you almost get hit by a bus, that's gonna shock you, and you're gonna remember that experience even though it only occurred one time. But if it's a mundane experience, you may have to repeat it again and again and again and again because it has a very low emotional salience. So there's no magic number that carries across all behaviors. Yeah. But what we definitely know is the more frequently a behavior occurs, the more off or the more likely it is to become a habit. Uh, definitely, frequency matters. There's maybe mm-hmm. some number of iterations. 
Uh, I'm talking about things specifically like meditating, exercising every day, oh. changing, changing yeah. what you eat. Uh, there, there yeah. does seem to be some solid research around somewhere around six weeks. And even in like traditional you know, Chinese or, or, uh, Indian or Hindu kind of texts, they talk about, you can do this for 40 days. And out here, you yeah. typically see 42 days because that's six weeks. But you're, you're right. right. If stepping off a curb into traffic and almost getting hit happened every day for 42 days, you'd probably feel <laughs> incredibly strange. So yeah. I, I will say that there, there's something around forming a routine, yeah. which I would actually categorize slightly different from ah. a habit. A routine I would categorize as something that you schedule in your day. There you go. Right? So a habit is checking my phone with little or no conscious thought. Uh, that's not ah, necessarily okay. a routine. I didn't schedule that to happen. That's just something that happens. I don't have to think about it. Meditation, in fact, I think is not really a habit. If you meditate every day, that, you might be in the routine of doing a Good habit. Uh, of, I'm sorry. You might be in the routine of meditating. I don't necessarily think you're in the habit of meditating unless you start meditating without really thinking that you're doing it, which is kind of, you know, the opposite of, of actual <laughs> meditation. You're supposed to be present. Uh, so yeah, I accidentally but, meditated uh, when I was daydreaming, and now, now I think yeah, I'm a exactly. bad guru. That doesn't really right, count right? as meditating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I could see, you know, there is a factor of when you do a behavior m multiple days, and, and, and maybe, you know, I haven't seen any research on this, but I, I, I could envision a study sh showing that this occurs. You know, what happens is your self-image begins to change. And that's a form of investment. Oh, we talk right. about investment in the hook cycle. When you become the kind of person who has meditated for 45 days, for 50 days, for 60 days, you suddenly become a meditator. And you're investing in your self-image, and that becomes something that makes you more likely to do it in the future. There's a lot of research, fascinating research, that shows what happens when people see themselves as, as part of the behavior as opposed to you know, seeing the behavior as something that's not part of themselves. Uh, that that, that uh, I, I wrote this article uh, a few weeks ago around this, uh, uh, some of this research that shows that when you, when you describe a behavior of something that you don't do uh, versus something that you won't do, that just that simple change in language of seeing something that, you know, if you think about a vegetarian, uh, when a vegetarian doesn't eat meat or when a Muslim doesn't drink alcohol or a devout Jew doesn't uh, eat pork, you know, they're, they're not expending willpower when they make that decision. It, it's just who they are. It's not, it's, not, it's, not a will, it's not something that's hard for them to decide. It's just part of their identity. The, a vegetarian doesn't sit there and say, oh, should I have some bacon or not? They just don't eat oh, meat. Oh, come on. They're uh, thinking about the bacon. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on, this, on the cheat day. <laughs> so, but we can, we can use that same psychology. If we can define our self-image as the kind of person who does that behavior forever, that's just who we are. And that becomes a, a huge advantage, actually. Okay, so there's a self-definition part of it. Right. Well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation, and I've got one more question for you. One that I think you might have sure. a pretty unusual answer. I've asked uh, every guest the same question over more than 200 episodes. And the question is, given all the stuff you know, not just about habits, but everything that you've, you've seen in your life, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to kick ass at everything I do, I want to I be better at everything, what are the three most important things I should know or three most important things I should do? Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a massive question. <laughs> uh, let's see. So off the top of my head, having not, not prepared for that, that question, I think the first step uh, is to talk, stop taking things so seriously. Okay. Humor. <laughs> I like it. Surprisingly <laughs> enough. I remember, so when I was raising money for my last company, uh, this was you know, the first time I was raising venture capital. And uh, I, I went to Kleiner Perkins, yeah. this you know very revered venture capital fund, and guys. I sat down with 
Bing Gordon, who was the founder of Atari, and like it was, wow. you know, this like this this very it was very nervous at, at the time, and I was really stressed out, and I was kind of sweating, and then I remember thinking this this thought kind of popped in my head, and I said, wait a minute, this is just prom, <laughs> right? That you know, if you think of, I remember prom, <laughs> totally. like when you were in high school, prom was such a big deal. Lisa was for me, kind of a neurotic kid. Maybe you know, I, I, I prom was a big deal for me. And, but then looking back, you know, it's, it's stupid. It doesn't really matter. No, it, it's, it's, it's meaningless, right? It was just, just your high school prom. What, what, who cares? But at the time, it meant a big deal. And, and so my revelation was, and, and ever since then, was that, you know what? It's all just prom. Like, when I get nervous and when I feel like I'm about to choke, I just repeat that mantra of, you know, it's just prom. That, that we're a tiny speck in a ginormous universe, and we're lucky to be alive in this age, in this country, in this time and place, and that... It's all just prom. So that's the first thing, is to, is to not take things quite so seriously. I wish I had learned that lesson uh, a lot sooner. Um, and then, do I have to do two more? Or that two one more. <laughs> it's a habit. Let's see. What other one? So the question was, what, what, what's the one thing that you would do? Say yeah, that, so, say that, so if someone just came and said, look, I, I want to be better at everything. Be you better know, at what, everything. What should I do? Marry well. <laughs> that's the first one. That, that's a I great that's, answer, okay? That's been a, a you, you know, marry well for two reasons. Number one, I've seen a lot of people marry poorly, and that becomes a tremendous uh, drain on their potential, right? When you, when, you, when you shack up with somebody who doesn't bring out the best in you, uh, that is very hard to escape, right? Our, our uh, divorce is not as, as easy as people think. It can take years and years, uh, and it's, it's soul-sucking, and so you really want to marry well or don't marry at all. And uh, I've been very blessed that I've, I've uh, my secret weapon in life is uh, this amazing woman, Julie, who is uh, just, I can't sing her praises highly enough. We, we, we just celebrated uh, seven, no, 18 years together. We've been together for 18 years. So we've been together more than we have not been together in our, in our life. And so um, we're, 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 I'm very blessed to have found her. So that, that's the second tip. And then the third, to be better at everything... Uh, I would say follow your curiosity, not your passion. I think there's a lot of discussion around following your passion. I think it misleads people because people think you're supposed to enjoy your passion. And I actually think that's a mistake because, uh, like I mentioned with writing, writing is actually something that's quite difficult for me. But it's a beautiful kind of torture. Like it's a sensuous torture. You know, it's like, it's like uh, I don't know, it sounds like S&M or something, right? I, I, I enjoy the pain of, of working hard at something that I'm sincerely curious to know the answer about. Uh, and so I think if you can do that as a career, uh, that's one of the greatest blessings that, that, that we can have in our lifetime is to work on something uh, that is not always fun. You know, you know, maybe we're not passionate about it and that we wake up every morning and say, oh, hurrah, I can't wait to, to go to work today. That's not the requirement. The requirement is to, to do something that you genuinely want to know the answer to, that you follow your curiosity. Can I do it? Can I find the answer? Can I enrich the world uh, by figuring out the answers to these curiosities in my life? So there you go. Awesome. Those are some impressive answers for not having prepared. Th thanks, Nir. Thank you. Your website is nearandfar.com, and your book was called Hooked, Building, Habit, Forming. Ah, I got the name wrong How off the build. top of my head. I was trying to remember it, but I need to talk to my buddy no Jim problem. Quick about my memory skills. So uh, <laughs> uh, tell me the name of your book again, because I swapped it Hooked. out earlier with the, sure. the name of your TED Talk. But um, it's called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Thank you. I almost had it right. Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. 
I just finished reading it. It's actually a, a really good book. So if you're interested in understanding how this stuff works, uh, do me a favor, go out there and buy Nier's book and just, just read it, learn, use it. And just one little thing, build products that help people and get them hooked to that. Don't build like crappy products because that's just not right. Have a great day. Hey, this is Dave Asprey here at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop in Santa Monica, California. This is where many of the recipes for Bulletproof, the cookbook, were designed. The cookbook is based on the New York Times best-selling book, The Bulletproof Diet. When you eat this way, you have limitless energy, you don't have food cravings, you're not hungry, and you just feel amazing all the time, more willpower, and your pants are gonna be looser anyway. When you buy this book, I'm gonna give you a big discount on the book, free shipping, and a bunch of bonus content to teach you how to cook this way so you just have that amazing sense of wellness all the time. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.